Welcome to episode three of Solo Female Travel. I think I'm beginning to find a rhythm with this show. And thank you to everyone who's given me feedback thus far. I want to mention that when I send a link to the show to friends or any of you guys who are listening, I don't expect y'all to listen right away. There's no pressure even though I'm excited to share with you what I'm working on, um, and I want people to share that excitement with me, I do understand that timing is everything, so just listen to these episodes when it feels right to you. You don't have to explain to me why you're not, you haven't done it yet. Um, I don't care if you've been at home rubbing it out for 16 hours a day instead of listening to the podcast. I really don't, because maybe rubbing it out was what felt better to you than listening to it, and that's really what I want, because really, all I'm doing is talking too much for an hour, so <laughs> just do it. Just do what you want. Um, do what feels right, as always, because I firmly believe that everyone should only indulge in the requests of others when the timing feels authentic. And if you do listen, please DM or email me at solofemaletravelpod on IG or Twitter or solofemaletravelpod at gmail.com. And what I'm asking for in those DMs and emails is just that you give me the most honest feedback you can think of. My feelings aren't going to be hurt if you're criticizing my performance in the least bit. I understand this is a new experience for um for me, and it's a new experience for you to listen to me talking about something that isn't just my direct relationship to you if you're one of my friends. Um, and I, I really am excited to hear what you have to say because I want this to be the most consumable version of a show that it can be for you, my friends, and for new listeners as well. So today's episode is pretty vulnerable and I found myself feeling overwhelmed with emotion during a few segments so please forgive the breaks in my voice. I just ask that you understand that I'm including the more sensitive and intimate part of my character today which I normally only share with very close friends or serious romantic partners so thank you for understanding. Let's go ahead and rev this bitch up and start our episode three. Hey! Welcome to Solo Female Travel, a weekly campfire chat about the experience of transforming from an outsider to a woman of power, paying respect to the great motherfucking outdoors. I'm your host, Manda R., proudly crushing rural America as a queer woman of color since 1989. This podcast is inclusive of all genders and exists to hold a space for inspirational community members who are passionate about the empowerment of women. I'm focused on covering topics that range from outdoors womanship, solo travel, mental health, sex, and dating entrepreneurship, activism, and more. Let's hit the trail, y'all. So we can always get back to the more serious stuff, but I'm going to start by lightening it up with a question from my friend and a listener, Kevin. He asked, I would love to hear about some of the really cool places you've camped and some of the ones that aren't so cool. 
Kevin also told me in a correspondence over Instagram that when he was listening to my podcast, the first and second episode, he turned it into a drinking game where every time I said the word sex, he drank a shot of bourbon. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I'm pretty, he must have gotten a little drunk. Because I think I said it quite a few times in the first and second episodes. Uh, so, I mean, maybe we can turn, maybe we can turn solo female travel into a drinking game as well. I mean, that is to assume that you are drinking. If you're a sober person, then have a, lo- like, a little shot of kombucha or a little head uh, of a cigarette or a little sip of coffee or something. I need to mention that I have been traveling on and off in a fashion similar to the one that I'm doing right now for about 10 years. So this list of cool places and not so cool places I'm going to give you are highlighted locations and inten- they're intentionally vague because I I almost feel like people they like y'all need to have a little bit of a challenge to go find the cool places i'm not going to give you direct coordinates to spots that are really beautiful i'm going to give you kind of a, a head start or like a little cheat code to get to some cool spots and we're going to start in my home state of michigan where i've fallen in love with a couple of places and i think i think y'all might like them too if you happen to be in the area Within Michigan, the the uh, northern lower peninsula, I really have enjoyed my time in Manistee in the, uh, National Forest on Lake Michigan, and the city or town of Manistee as well. Also, the city or town of Frankfurt. Those two cities, I recommend that you patronize whenever you're in the area. Also, the Upper Peninsula, I will not be specific at all about any spots in the Upper Peninsula because it is pristine, it is beautiful, it is wild. You can experience a lot of wildlife there that you can't in uh, every, everywhere in the United States. So I think that um, if you want to experience some wilderness and some desolation, go to the Upper Peninsula, talk to some rangers and some locals if you can get them to open up to you about some places you should go experience the land there and um yeah nature wildlife northeastern minnesota is a place that is very special to me a small town i recommend that you patronize there is the town of grand marais home to my friend sarah um also duluth beautiful city uh the superior hiking trail follows the direction of Lake Superior. I think it's a 310-mile trail. Uh, Very pretty. Beware of some mosquito hatching that happens that can be pretty violent. Um, But yeah, do your research before you go and decide whether or not you're going to be able to tolerate that. And of course, so many lakes there to be experienced, lakes and rivers. Um, And... Um, you know, the wildlife, bear, moose, wolves, should you be so lucky to encounter those, uh, on, on the trail. Um, so yeah, that, that area, that part of the state is very gorgeous and highly recommend if you're in the Midwest and you get a chance, go on up there, explore. 
Montana. Go experience Glacier National Park. Unparalleled beauty. The surrounding areas of Glacier National Park also. The Flathead Valley or Flathead County. That's all you get. Idaho. The Panhandle is exquisite. Hell's Canyon in Idaho. Seven Devil's Lake in Hell's Canyon in Idaho. It is beautiful. Seven Devils is one place that I've really enjoyed. Um, but Hell's Canyon also borders Washington and parts of Oregon. So find out which spot works best for you and go experience it. It's absolutely worth it on the Snake River. The state of Washington. Experience the Olympic Peninsula. There are not there there are not enough minutes in this episode to talk about Washington, so I think that it's very important to just immerse yourself in Washington and find out what it is that you like the best about it, which part of the state you like the best, and go for it. Just send it. You may have gathered from previous episodes that I live in Oregon, the beautiful state of Oregon. If you happen to be in eastern Oregon, enjoy the city or the town of Joseph. In southern Oregon, enjoy the Illinois Valley, Cave Junction, Selma, the Illinois River, and the Winchuck River if you're on coastal southern Oregon. Uh, the Winchuck River runs from the Rogue River, Siskiyou National Forest to the coast, and the mouth is in, uh, opens up to the Pacific Ocean, and it's very beautiful. In California, experience Lassen National Forest, the Hat Creek area, experience Highway 395, the cities you should patronize, Along this route are Lone Pine, California, and Bishop, California. Also in Coastal, California. Experience the Matol River. I am uh, new to the Great American Southwest. The two locations I can recommend that you experience are Catalina State Park in the Tucson area, and Prescott National Forest in the Prescott area. If you're in the Prescott area, in and around the National Forest, you should beware of the Javelina. They are, the Javelina is a, it's a pig-like hoofed animal. <laughs> they're, um, they're active at night or during the cool parts of the day. They eat plants and insects. They resemble a wild boar but they're actually not a pig technically um they eat plants and insects they have very poor eyesight sometimes uh i've heard that it looks like they're charging you when in fact they're just trying to run for their life but because they're so blind they can't really actually tell which direction they're going so be gentle with the javelina the javelina have a keen sense of smell um, they also can be aggressive and cause harm to a dog 
Um, and a dog and coy- or a coyote could cause harm to them. So try to limit interaction between between those those two animals. Um, they also can attract uh, large cats because they are common prey for large cats. Um, and like all wildlife, really don't feed them because the the most amount of like human javelina negative interactions have come when when uh, people have decided they want to feed them because they think they're cute little pigs but they're actually pretty aggressive so try to keep those uh, little shits out of your camp and that is the end of the list of places that I'm going to elaborate on that I've really enjoyed camping there are a lot more but um I think that should do for now Okay, so to conclude this segment, uh, or the answering of Kevin's questions, he asks uh, about what are, like, not-so-cool places that I've camped. Um, Nothing sticks out in my mind as a place that's been very uncool to camp, but I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about national parks. If you are trying to kind of be free and left alone and not really experience a whole lot of authority, I don't recommend that you go to national parks. There are a lot more uh, rangers that patrol all of the areas in national parks, so... Um, And national parks have a lot more fees on campsites and regulations on dogs and pets. So um, just try to avoid those if that's not something that you're willing to uh, deal with. I don't think that it's not, I don't think that it's not cool as much as I think that it's just a little bit more focus is required to experience national parks. So just keep that in mind if you're going into a place that actually has a national park title because you are going to have to do a little bit more work to enjoy yourself at this point i would like to circle back to our theme topic of transparency for episode three i want to talk about these conversations i've been having with my sweet beautiful friend sawyer recently about the solo female travel lifestyle or just the outdoor lifestyle in general um I think that it's important to me, and she was mentioning it's important to her also that people are aware of how gross this lifestyle can actually be, and how um, how radical you have to be to maintain it. So um, I don't know if you've ever washed yourself in a rest area, but it, it can be like a lot of, uh, it can produce a lot of anxiety when you're trying to um, wash your genitals in the sink of a rest area um, <laughs> and uh, your brush your teeth, you know, uh, these are things people don't expect to see other people doing in rest areas, you know, or say you were sleeping overnight in a Walmart and you needed to get up in the morning and run inside quickly and take a shit or brush your teeth or something like that. It's all kind of gross. Um, we've talked about all of the sacrifices that we make in pursuit of this lifestyle of freedom. And this definitely qualifies, you know, you want to be relatively clean. And sometimes you can't even handle the smell of your own self after several days. So um, people like to ask, you know, how do you prevent smelling bad in public? Um, But again, I mean, this might boil down to compatibility. You want to be around day or fuck people who think that you are, you are sexy for being willing to sacrifice being 
um, perceived by the masses as acceptable or normal. So, um, that, you know, you're giving a lot of, you're giving up a lot of your pride doing this and living out of your car. There are like random, random shits that happen. You take a tampon out, but you're not at a rest area because you have to change it. You know, that's, that's basic hygiene. You change a tampon, you throw it into an old coffee cup. And then, you know, a month later you find a coffee cup rolling around under your seat and you open it up and you find a used tampon. It's absolutely disgusting. You get into your car after hiking for six or seven hours and you're like, why the fuck does my car smell like central fucking Idaho? Oh, well, it's because there's a half rotten onion rolling around under my seat. Really nasty shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just like so fucking gross. Um, you know, or you're good on the Tinder or something because you're horny in a random city and you are, you suddenly have a date and you're planning to go hook up with somebody and you're like, well, I need to shave my, uh, my, my pits and my pussy. And then you end up shaving your pits and your pussy in in another another rest area hoping to god no one walks in on you and sees you doing this disgusting thing so these are all really real and true experiences that i've had my friend sawyer has had and she's mentioned as you know these aren't like this is the less glamorous side of hashtag van life. We see all of these people just doing, taking beautiful pictures of, of uh, scenic overlooks, you know, or the wide open road, and it looks so peaceful and wonderful and like such a great experience. But if you're going to commit to this lifestyle, there are things that you should know. It's really fucking nasty. It's nasty, nasty, nasty. And, um, and that's where compatibility comes in. Who are you hanging out with? Do they understand it? This next question comes from Jessica. Jessica asked, where do you recommend parking if someone doesn't want to go deep in the woods like you do, or if they need a quick, short night during travel between destinations? Okay, so I'm... I'm always looking to go out as far out as possible and try to plan accordingly. Um, but there are nights when I am traveling. I need a I need to stop somewhere just for a few hours to get some rest. Obviously, rest areas that's what they're for. You know, you have some rest, but those can be a little uncomfortable depending on where you're, which state or part of the state you're staying in. So, um, if you're within a town or a city or close to a town or city, a lot of people use Walmart. Uh, A lot of Walmart parking lots uh, do not um, restrict people from sleeping overnight in their travel vehicles within their parking lots. And if they do restrict it, there will be signs that say you can't sleep here overnight. But in general, that's a pretty safe bet to look for a Walmart. Also, um, campgrounds and state like private campgrounds and state parks uh uh can be found pretty close to developed areas the reason i don't like to go to those are because they can be they're usually there are usually fees that apply staying in one of those two places but if you're you know up for it you don't mind spending the money and you maybe want a hot shower the state parks and campgrounds often have those to offer so they're always a pretty interesting and safe bet to at least look into google them give them a call ask them what they have what their facilities are and their amenities are 
I definitely recommend those options. Um, you can try to get away with sleeping on side streets as well, but I don't recommend doing that for more than one night. So, of course, in the context of just having a short few hours of sleep or a quick night, side streets, Walmart, state parks, and private campgrounds should do the trick for you. Something that I want to talk about now is what it's like to be a person of color, black or brown person in an outdoor space. This can be very intimidating. Um, traveling through predominantly white rural spaces, parts of the country, um, it's something that white people don't consider because they're most of the time, they're the majority. Um, but the best way I can explain this to people who are white, who are, who are listeners to the podcast is, um, is that it's very obvious by your body language when that you're uncomfortable around us. Um, when you're uncomfortable around us, one way that I actually witnessed this was I, I was dating a man, a white man for years and he came with me to a couple of, uh, funerals of close family members that I had who were black, uh, who passed away and he was the only white person in the room. And it wasn't until he had that experience that he said to me after, after the event was done, um, and he was reflecting on the experience, he said something along the lines of, wow, so this is what you feel like all of the time. Because he had to go into rooms and spaces where there were no white people. He was the only one. And, and getting the uncomfortable stares or people wondering what he was doing there, how he knew the deceased, you know, um, made him very uncomfortable. And it's something that I almost was grateful for watching him be uncomfortable because I thought, wow, that's something that I deal with on a daily basis. I mean, every room I walk into is mostly white. Um, and even if you lived in one of the biggest cities in the United States or in the world, you, you know, as a person of color, you may still be one of the only ones. And that's an anxiety that we just accept. But one that people who are white never really get to experience. And I think it was very, uh, very helpful for him in that moment to see what it is that I deal with on a daily basis and helpful for me to see someone witness that. And how this applies to the podcast is that the outdoor community is made up mostly of white people and black people or brown people are not commonly perceived as people who enjoy spending time in the outdoors or spend or spending time anywhere. Hold on. I'm sorry. Flint, be quiet. Thank you. Black people are not often perceived as uh, a demographic of people who enjoy spending time outdoors because they're just not represented in outdoor spaces. So being the only one out there can feel quite intimidating, especially when you're going into places where there are, you know, that's BLM or land or national forest. You're dealing with, those are generally rural areas, and rural areas really do not um, host a whole lot of uh, residents of color. And oftentimes in those rural areas, you experience people who are 
quite racist and say some very offensive, sad, hurtful things. I mean, I've been called a nigger in these spaces before. I have a friend who I love very much who is half Mexican and one of the hottest people I've ever met in, in my life or seen in my life. Um, but she was spit at by a man in, in, in a parking lot in Montana because, because he told her that he didn't she didn't speak English and she should go back to Mexico. So these are very uncomfortable situations that happen that make you feel so unsafe and things that I don't think many white people can relate to. And so if you're a part of the outdoor community and you're a white person, you're not likely to have experienced that type of um, hostility at the hands of someone <laughs> who is a majority and has power over you societally. So that's something that I want to, it's a message I want to put out there for everyone to consider. If you do see black or brown people on the trail, try to acknowledge them and give them safe. So if you see them doing something that makes you, maybe you know is outside of the etiquette or the norm, like understand that, that, um, it, it's likely that that person of color, if they're doing something that you don't believe to be correct for um, outdoor etiquette, that they might be new to the situation. So if you are going to bring that up to them, do that in a way that's gentle and kind and still makes that person feel welcome in that outdoor space. Because I can't tell you, <laughs> I cannot tell you how uncomfortable it is to be out there and have someone be self-righteous or pompous about their experience in the wilderness. You really just want to, this, this land is our land, I suppose. This land is nobody's land if you're not a Native American, but this land is our land as uh, American citizens, and you need to accept that that, if you're a white person, please accept that that applies to everyone, black, brown, you know, white everyone. So, um, and be aware that that anxiety is very present for those of us who are non-white. Anonymous question. How is, how has being raised in a cult affected your spirituality? Oh, well, it, it affected me in a lot of different ways at different times. I imagine my perspective will change again, inevitably, as I get older. Um, initially, when I left, I was afraid to admit that I didn't believe in God. Um, because that was kind of like the ultimate, the ultimate sin, you know. Um, even though I never really did. Um, I, I never really did feel like I truly believed because I couldn't. I didn't feel like there was really a return on that investment. Um, uh, so that I felt that way for a while, just afraid, and I would just say I did just to, just to say it. Then I eventually, that morphed into, I became angry that anyone could believe in any God, and I spent a lot of time shaming religious people. Um for believing in something that had caused me and so many people so much pain. Um, and then I guess kind of where I'm at now, um, I, I'd, I'd softened with age, I guess just time passing. 
Um, and I began to understand like the human need for community and inclusion, belonging, loyalty. Um, but now that I have a lot of those needs met for me, um, outside of an insular, theistic, like, uh, like manipulation of my thoughts and choices. Um, I wrote something a couple years ago, and this is the best way that I can describe how I feel about God now, and it's just that I believe that it is when we project our perception of God onto others that God ceases to exist. So, I just don't, I don't feel safe um, being arrogant enough to tell anyone what is or is not. So, hopefully that makes sense. We've arrived at the dating segment. No, y'all love this. Going in deep, uh, deep and hard like a big fat dick. Oh, fuck. I'm sorry. You guys, is that too much? Does that... I need, feed, I need feedback on how my lascivious mouth makes y'all feel. I know it can be a lot. I, <laughs> I know for certain that I've scared away partners by um, being too direct. So <laughs> I don't want to scare away the podcast audience. Uh, I love you more than any of those jokers that bailed. Do you guys remember last week when Jeff asked the question, will you marry me and have my babies? Yeah, well, he's back. <laughs> and uh, this time with what I think is a, I think is a good question. It's a good job, Jeff. You've leveled up to good questionville. And uh, props for not being intimidated by me uh, hazing you on the quality of your question last week and laughing in your face when you asked me to marry you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate you. So, Jeff asked, do you find that it's harder to date men being as independent as you are? I have three answers for this question, and all of them contradict each other, so you're not going to leave having any more clarity about whether or not being an independent woman makes it, makes dating harder <laughs> with men, but, um, so the first answer is, yeah, yeah, I think it does make it harder, and in some way, probably just, um, probably just when the communication is not strong between me and the other person. So, you know, there can be like a misalignment of needs here. I, I don't have a traditional set of expectations or needs from men as it comes to, um, being provided for. So men who identify deeply with being providers, um, I think, I think those men are more difficult for me to date just because, um, that's something that's important to them. They like providing resources for the women in their life. And, um, I think that me being as self-reliant as I am, can be perceived by them as me being ungrateful, which is certainly not the case. Um, and I think dating people like this sometimes can be healthy for me because it lets me, uh, it allows me to let go of a little bit of control. Um, but it's not, 
it's easier, I guess, just to date people who like it that I'm self self-sufficient. So, uh, yeah, in that capacity, definitely it gets harder. The next answer is no. So, and that, that's because not all men are the same. Um, some men think it's hot that I take care of myself. Um, you know, maybe sometimes those men perhaps have had some sort of trauma associated with dating women who took advantage of their resources or were greedy and expected too much. Um, so, so dating those types of men, I get to just like not challenge myself at all. And in that way, it's super easy because they're like, Oh yeah, you want to pay for your food? Perfect. Um, you know, uh, so there's, it just depends on the man. So that's the no portion. Um, because I just can't apply one answer to, to, I mean, I've, I've dated so many different types of men, um, at this point that it just, I just gotta get a feel for it. I guess, I mean, I guess there are, yeah, there are some men who want to take advantage of women also, so I have to be aware of that and not, um, give too much and then find myself, uh, depleted of energy and resources because they, they see my, um, desire, my desire to provide as a way to escape responsibility. So, um, yeah, but no, uh, yeah, with, with, with men that are a little bit more relaxed around what they, what they think makes them, makes them man, you know, if they don't associate having to buy every meal, um, or provide everything with their masculinity, then it's not, it's really not that big of a deal. It just depends on the guy. And the third answer is, I don't even know. Because, I mean, I've always been this way. My dad likes to tell me this story uh, about when I was learning to tie my shoes. I still didn't know how to do it. I was taking too long to do it. He offered to help me. And I yelled at him. I was like, no, I can do it myself, you know. Um, and he he likes to remind me of that when he, when he senses that fight coming back up. Um, and I like to remind myself of that because it's like, you know, shit, sometimes, sometimes I do need help. Like, I didn't really know how to tie my shoes. I mean, he could have helped me, but I said no. Um, and that is such an old impulse for me to go to, you know, not wanting to inconvenience or someone else by having them help me that I was doing it at that young of an age. So it's something I've been working on my whole life. Um, and, and because I've always been that way, I have no idea whether or not it's harder because I don't have anything to compare it to. Um, you know, and one of the fir the first man in my life who is my dad, <laughs> even he remembers that about me. So, um, so yeah, I don't know, maybe, yeah. And men, I mean, it's hard, it's hard. I don't really know because men don't really tell me how they feel about me, <laughs> you know, like plenty of men have told me how they feel about me when they're angry, but not many men have told me how they feel when they're, when they're neutral or happy with me. And I think maybe that's, maybe that's because I'm, maybe it's because I'm unlovable. Uh, <laughs> maybe it's because men are conditioned from the youngest of ages to, not express their, not express their feelings. If their feelings are 
positive towards women, they often keep those repressed and, um, and we feel like they're withholding love and acceptance from us. So, uh, that could be one reason why I just haven't had that experience very often. Maybe they're born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Maybe lots of maybes going on here. My friend Kevin from Portland came through with a question. He said, when we were seeing each other, you were hell-bent on non-monogamy. Are you still that way? Do you think you'll always be that way? Well, um, hi, by the way. It's nice to, <laughs> nice to see it or nice to talk to you. <laughs> um, uh, when, when we were hanging out, um, you know, I was very fresh out of the nine-year relationship, and I just knew that monogamy was not something that I was going to be able to sustain. Um, I s currently am not uh, partnered with anybody exclusively, so I guess I, I guess you could say I'm still this way. I, I'm still um, available to uh, date whoever I want, um, but I don't. I don't know. I think that I think that I have, um, I have a tendency to be codependent, and I think that sometimes monogamy can perpetuate codependency, um, and so it just depends on the person that I'm seeing. If I, if I was seeing somebody that expressed that monogamy were, was important to them, I would just have to evaluate how I felt at that point, uh, but I just haven't had an opportunity to, to go for that, um, so, um, that's why, you know, <laughs> that's why I guess I could, you could say I still am that, that way. Um, I, I wouldn't consider myself like anti-monogamy at all. I don't think that it's wrong for people to do. Um, I wouldn't consider myself ethically non-monogamous like some people identify that way. Um, I just think that, uh, and also, I like having sex with, with various people. Something that, I, when I really like somebody, um, the, the sex is really good with that person, I try to test the waters and see how they feel about having open partnership or including other people in our sexual connection. Um, because I think it's a, a healthy precedent to set that that's some, something that I think about um, and something that I might want at some point. Um, and I'd rather do that earlier in my connection to somebody than later on, later on down the line as an attempt to rescue something that's, um, failing or like understimulating both of us. Um, and I have a healthy appreciation for all different types of people. If I'm dating a man, um, I don't have, and that person satisfies me, I kind of, like, want to share it with other people, and, like, women, if that person's straight, like, um, because I'm proud of it, it's something that I have, it's exciting, I'm like, look how good this guy is at throwing a dick, <laughs> you know, uh, but that's, that's not, everybody's not that way, and I don't think that there should be any shame around, people who don't feel that way or just want to be partnered with one person. And like I have expressed before, I feel like my sexuality is kind of fluid. So I want different things at different times. And, um, I just think that, uh, communicating with an apartment, a partner, if I, I happen to be sexually exclusive with them about needs changing is the most important. And also choosing someone who doesn't feel intimidated or insecure 
by me feeling that way. Um, and, and keeping those lines of communication open, it just, I don't want to be shamed for feeling some kind of way about wanting sex with someone else or, or, uh, them wanting sex with someone else. They shouldn't feel that way either. I'm going to take a minute to talk about, um, toxicity and some of the ways that I, I am toxic and, uh, and, romantic connections. I think that, um, or maybe just all interpersonal connections. I'm not totally sure. Um, sometimes I find myself tangled up with somebody who's like, like I discover kind of early on that they're maybe not super healthy for me. Um, but it usually it takes me a little bit longer to cut that off than I want it to. The last experience I had like that, I was just reflecting on, uh, I, I, I needed to, I knew I needed to end it. Um, and I also needed to collect some things from his house. So I, um, I, I, I went there and got the things and I didn't mention anything about, um, separating at that point. And when I say separating, I don't mean that we were like seriously dating, just no longer seeing each other separating. Um, I didn't mention anything that evening. Uh, I stayed the night. I collected my things in the morning and I left and I still didn't say anything. And I was feeling bad about myself because I knew that I wanted it to be over and I didn't say anything at that last opportunity that I had. And so I had a couple of drinks that next evening, um, got a little loose <laughs> and, um, and he texted me, was just having a conversation, uh, a casual conversation. And I picked a fight, um, about something stupid. And it was probably because I was drinking and I didn't have the clarity that I needed to, you know, be aware that I was, I was picking a fight. It was a subconscious thing that happened. Um, and he got really angry and I'd never seen him angry like that before. I'm, I'm kind of glad I did because it was a, it was a look into what a fight with that person would look like if we had decided to date more seriously. Um, and it was pretty fucking ugly. So, um, I'm, I'm glad that it happened, but I still feel like I need to take responsibility for the behavior that I had that was toxic, which was to pick a fight to begin with. Um, and I should have known not to even reply to his message when I was, um, when I was, had been drinking because, um, you know, a, a lot of times when you're drinking, your filters are down. You're not really, just don't have the same, same judgment that you do when you're sober. And so, uh, yeah, I really had to think about that and kind of look inward. I'm trying to be as self-aware as possible, just, um, even though I didn't, even though I knew I didn't want to see him anymore, I just don't think that was fair. So, um, trying to hold myself to a higher standard of behavior with people that I've partnered with because, you know, sex changes things and, um, it changes the way you feel about people and changes your response to them when they express that they they disapprove of you. And I expressed that I disapproved of him in a way and he reacted really, really badly to that. And, um, so yeah, that's one thing that I am really, I, I, uh, I'm trying to work on. If anybody wants to, to, uh, send me a message, um, to talk about things that they do that are, they've noticed a pattern of the, the, of being problematic in their relationships, I would love to hear about it. Um, or if you, 
you just want to discuss things along these lines. I, I just do think it's really important to be not always blaming, pointing the finger at the other person when something doesn't end up working out the way you wanted it to, you know? Um, and that was definitely on me, so... Okay, so more on this theme of transparency, um, I suppose this could be a little bit of a carryover from the dating segment, but um, it's a little bit more of a personal uh, telling of how I deal or have dealt with pain and grief um, around the loss of partnership. Uh, I had a nine-year relationship with a man who introduced me to the dirtbag lifestyle, like car life you know, scrounging for resources, stealth camping, leave no trace. Um, He helped me learn about gear that I would need to live the life. I feel like grief um, around this loss of of love partnership comes in waves um and so does resol- like the resolution of the grief comes in waves too you know periods of time where you feel better and don't and like i've talked about in previous episodes that i try to exercise sitting with myself when i'm feeling sadness or pain this is definitely one of the issues that brings up um a lot and my friendship with sawyer um has been it's a new friendship but we've uh been talking a lot about some of the pain that um that I and and she repress um and trying to have more like intimate um and vulnerable discussions with each other about how we repress it one way that I have uh, noticed I I have a pattern of um chasing I chase men it's like one of my favorite things to do I don't really like to be chased but I love chasing them it's uh quite the rush um lately I've been chasing one person in particular um and I mean it's really not any different uh I then uh than anybody else I don't I usually think when I'm in the headspace where I'm chasing people it's um it's just like a symptom of, of love addiction for me. Um, and, and the addiction isn't really to the specific person, but it's like an addiction to, to be, to being desired or coveted or wanted. Um, and I don't chase men to possess men, but to possess all of the love and validation that was like withheld from me during my formative years. Um, I think it's critical to be self-aware enough to recognize when I'm pursuing love from men, whether or not it's motivated by healthy desire for intimacy with uh, that person or just anyone, or if it's a projection of my pain and unresolved feelings of abandonment. And of course, like many women, I am, I'm no different in that, um, I, for a very long time, just chased men who are incapable of giving me a fair and healthy reciprocation on the love that I wanted, um, because that's what was familiar to me, and getting into that relationship with an abusive man, um, and staying there for nine years is a perfect example of that, um, and something that I think is often misunderstood about abusers is that um they're 
generally, abusers aren't all bad. I mean, in fact, I don't believe that anyone is all bad. Um, I think, I think people can have a lot of bad behavior, um, and be dysfunctional, but there are still things about them that we love and we, they're good things, things that we love for good reasons, which makes the process of leaving harder. You know, when you get hung up on the things that you appreciate about people who treat you with disrespect and the good memories, once, you know, once I was out of that partnership and once people leave difficult partnerships like that, I think the good memories, um, are the ones that come up when you're, when you are grieving that loss. For example, um, last year I was just scrolling through IG and I saw a picture that a friend of mine posted of a park in Denver, um, that was right around the corner from the apartment that I shared with my ex. And, um, I was just hit by this wall of pain and sadness and it wasn't because anything bad happened at that park. It was because a lot of good things happened there and I had good memories that I shared with him. Um, and seeing that caused about a bout of crying that lasted for about two days. And at that point, prior to having that feeling after seeing that picture, I hadn't really had a sad thought about him in forever or a good memory or any really anything um that hit me that viscerally so uh that's what i mean about coming in waves um you feel good like the pain is resolved and then and then something comes up and <laughs> and triggers it and you realize that's not the case you still have some things to work through so if you are experiencing anything like that right now, um, or, or you do in the future and you've heard this, hopefully you know that it's safe to reach out and talk to me, um, about it because it's definitely, um, it's tempting for me to pretend that, uh, I'm fine all the time and that I don't, I don't still feel sad about, about, um, that person who I loved with everything, um, not being a part of my life anymore, but, uh, yeah, and even though ultimately that is the, that is the belief that I'm, I'm, I'm out and it's good and I don't want to be back in that, um, there's still sadness that comes up, so if that comes up for you, um, and you want to talk it through, you can send me a message, we can chat about it a little bit. Okay, so I've got one more question from an anonymous listener. Um, how and when did you become obsessed with being outside? Um, well, I think it's been a slow process. Um, there's definitely one moment that sticks out of my mind. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, but, you know, being from Michigan... A lot of people there are very outdoorsy, um, and my family was no different, and my family and friends were no different growing up. So we just spent a lot of a lot of time outside. I didn't know that I was going to become someone who wanted to live outside eventually, um, or that I was going to be um, this deeply entrenched in the in the lifestyle and community of living outdoors. But here I am. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is I think I had a fund, like a fundamental head start on just being aware of what it feels like to be outside anyway. And then, like I just mentioned in the last segment, I, um, dated somebody who was f 
belong to a family who spent a lot of time backpacking, and I learned a lot from him about that, and, um, I guess the moment when I truly felt it was in, in Glacier National Park in Montana, um, uh, my, my partner and I had, um, driven, driven from North Carolina, um, to, to Montana and we were touring around Glacier and, um, so I'd seen a lot of really beautiful sights up until that point. Um, it was certainly not the first mountain that I'd ever seen when we got to Logan Pass. Um, there's a trailhead for the Highline Trail there. Um, and we were just about to start, and I, I don't know if there was something going on with me, like, nutritionally, um, or what, but I had a moment where I was susceptible to some deep feeling, and it happened, um, and we were standing there, getting ready to start the trail, and I looked up, and I... I felt so overwhelmed um, that I had to sit down on the ground. I couldn't stand. My my legs got weak, um, and I wasn't sure what that feeling was. There, it was. I felt so emotional. I just, I I sat down and crossed my legs and I cried, um, and I couldn't I couldn't stop. I cried for. All of the times that I felt unloved and ashamed, and all of the times I felt lonely um, as a child and an adult, and and the times that I like begged God <laughs> to give me any sign at all that He was real, so that I didn't have to feel alone anymore. Um, but God was always silent, so. I cried for those moments when, when the nothing happened, you know, um, because I felt in that moment, I was looking over a glassy pool of standing water and I saw the reflection of, um, uh, Mount, Mount Clements, uh, at the start of the Highline Trail, um, and, and I saw the reflection and it was so beautiful and I looked up and then just to see the peak itself in front of me, I, I had never really known humility until that moment, in that moment. Um, and it was there, uh, that I, that I just cried and wept with joy. I think for the first time in my life, I, because I knew fully that this view that that moment was my it was my reward for for surviving and working so fucking hard like physically and and emotionally to to move and place myself somewhere that I um I never knew that I wanted so badly to be until I was there, until I was sitting there crying, you know? Um, and I knew that I had only myself to thank for it, really. Uh, not a Christian God, 
not my dad who didn't did not really know how to love me not a mom who didn't know how to love herself um and sitting there people passing by me staring staring at me i was i was just i was too stunned by the scene to to care what they thought um and the scene i could i can best describe was the height and the strength of this mountain and the vibrant colors of the day and what I saw in, in that mount, mountain was my worth staring back at me. And how could I not be in love with her? How could I not chase that high for the rest of my life? You know, that one moment when I was, I was still five years away from being free of a violent man. <laughs> I was still trapped, but I've never felt a more concentrated a concentrated dose of love for myself than then. And that was when I knew I was going to be a fucking addict to being outside. <laughs> it's quite a reward. I close my eyes till I see neon jungles and suddenly everything's green around me. I close my eyes till there's no one around. Every face that I've known simply gone long gone when out of sight no love can last. When out of reach no bond can hold when out of joy no stories can be told nature knows no pain nature seeks no gain nature will Okay, so as a send-off, um, thanks for making it through the slightly down-tempo episode. Um, last thing I'm gonna do is just give you a list of things that I keep in my, um, bathroom slash shower slash hygiene kit. Um, so a bunch of basics, nothing extra. Toothpaste, toothbrush, a small bottle of Dr. Bronner's, um, which I use for shampoo as well. Uh, as body wash, conditioner, small bottle, leave-in conditioner, sunscreen, I need to wear more regularly, um, reusable wash rag that just goes in with the laundry when I do laundry, um, Vaseline or petroleum jelly for chafing, but also for, um, it's, it's a, um, an accelerant, so you can use it to start a fire. Uh, you just put it on, like, a cotton ball or a little bit of toilet paper or something, and that usually gets your fire going very quickly. Um, coconut oil has many functions. I use that instead of lotion. Um, 
nail clippers, tweezers, some kind of natural deodorant, a razor, small scissors, tampons, baby wipes, Ziploc bags um, to keep any open bottle or container that you have so it doesn't spill all over the place. But also, um, it's good to take with you on a hike if you um, take toilet paper with you because you never know if you're going to have to uh, take an emergency shit. Um, also, condoms because you never know who. Uh, never know when. And lube, which... <laughs> interesting story I was trying to have sex with this guy for like well not trying but I wanted to have sex with this guy for like two years and I finally got around to it and um it was a lot of fun but I hadn't had enough water to drink that day and I drank a shit ton of alcohol with him and my pussy like would not get wet and it was super embarrassing so um I don't give a fuck if I have to buy a bottle of lube that lives in my car and I only need it <laughs> once a year but but uh yeah that shit ain't gonna happen to me again it was hell embarrassing I redeemed myself though like the next time I had sex with him I'm uh I didn't I didn't need <laughs> I didn't need any lube I drank I drank water for like two days prior anyway so that's the list of things that are in my hygiene kit I don't think I left anything out um hopefully all y'all outsiders solo travelers have an excellent week and I'll talk to you soon thanks